last time we looked at this passage, we saw that God's divine goodness has given us all that we need for life and godliness. That spiritual life, godliness, leads to eternal life. God has not only regenerated our hearts, changed our hearts, made our hearts new, but he has given us everything we need for this life. He's given us his word. He's given us the church. He's given us friendships and much more to pursue a life of godliness. Tonight we are going to see that this comes, really, it works through knowledge of Christ, knowledge of God, and it's spurred on by remembering the promises that God has given to his people. There have been men of great knowledge who have also been men who lived dangerously close to the edge of hell. And I want to say this as we start. There have been many men and women who have sat where you sit week in and week out, who have heard the gospel clearly proclaimed, have garnered much knowledge, gained much knowledge, yet they have turned to the promises they find in this world. They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they are right now worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Friends, tonight we are going to hear more about the truth of God. And I pray that your mind and your hearts and your ears would be awakened, that your hearts would be alive, that your hearts would love this gospel. So read with me from verses 3 through 11. His divine power has granted us all things for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is found in this world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail, fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Grant us grace to hear, grant us grace to see, grant us grace to believe, grant us grace to have a life of godliness. Father, I pray even now as we seek to understand your word that you would give wisdom, that you would give insight, that you would give great love towards us. Allow us to hear. If there is someone in this room that does not know your gospel, Father, allow them to believe tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you realize this or not, but as you're reading this text, one thing that jumps out to me is that verse 3 and 4 is just one long sentence. It's one huge statement after the next. And we see at the beginning of the sentence that the source 
is God's divine power, and the goal is a life of godliness. God has gifted both life and godliness. Tonight we're going to see how God's divine power actually works, how it's active. And it works through knowledge, and it works through promises. Sorry, i got to get some water. My first point is that God's divine power grants us all things for life and godliness through knowledge. Now, it's important that we understand that the divine power of God is coming through. It's coming through knowledge. Knowledge has been and will always be very significant for godliness. Now, it's not just any random knowledge. It specifically says knowledge of him. The first question we should ask ourselves is, who is this him? This is knowledge of God who calls us to his own glory and excellence. This is not trivial knowledge. It's not something that everyone in the room possesses. This knowledge is hope-filled. It's full of joy. It is longing for the day when faith will be turned into sight, when we will see our Savior. Not only is this knowledge regarding God, but it is knowledge of him who does something. Knowledge of him who calls. God is acting toward mankind. So life and godliness is tied to God who calls us to his own glory and excellence. This connects really well to Romans 8.30, which says, And those whom he, God, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, in the case of the scriptures, normally, the one who is calling, doing the call, is God the Father. And the Father, in the scriptures, is typically calling us to come to who? His Son. He's telling us to come to Jesus. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me, or calls to me, will come to me, Jesus, and I will never cast them out. Second Thessalonians 13 and 14 says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory, not just any glory, but the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I found it really difficult to divine exactly what his own glory and excellence is. Notice that these are nouns. His own glory and excellence is an actual thing. It's an actual place. It's an actual person. And Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He's the exact imprint of the glory of God. Of God. John 14, when Thomas is doubting, remember Thomas the doubter? He's t- doubting, he asks Jesus, Who are you? And he says, Thomas, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So Jesus possesses the very nature, the very glory, and the very excellence of his Father. 2 Corinthians 4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He blinds minds from understanding this glory. 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of who? Christ, who is the image of God. God's own glory and excellence is definitely found in heaven. But more particularly, at its height, at its pinnacle, its union with Christ, its union with the Son of God. Heaven, glory, is all about perfect union without sin with Christ. Now, think about that. Think about this world. You want union with others. You want union with this world. But in heaven, it will be all about union with Christ. Is there a more excellent, a more glorious place to be found than in belonging to the Son? You may think of certain possessions you have. You know, hey, I got a car, I got a house. These are pretty great places. I love my home. I love my house. I love my friends. You may think to yourself, you know, I've traveled the world, seen different places. I've been to all different types of islands, to the mountains. It's beautiful. Even the closest pictures we have in this life pale in comparison to our union with Christ, our placement with Christ, to being with this person. Let me give you the best example, the best and closest example we have, and that's the marital union. There is no greater earthly intimacy that one man and one woman can have than in marriage. You are known and you know another person as well as you ever have known anyone else. You love, you care, you sacrifice for them. You would even lay down your life for them if needed. Yet, yet it pales in comparison to the union with Christ. Because often in the marital union, what do we find? We find sin. We find resentment. We find anger. This is why we can't put our hope in any person, place, or thing. Only Christ is our eternal treasure. He is the only thing that will satisfy. Christ pursues us. He loves us. He dies for us even while we were still sinners. John Flavel, Puritan, says, take away union with Christ and you will find no communion with God. If you want communion, if you want heaven, you must be united to this Christ. You must have this Christ in your life. You may enjoy this life. You may enjoy this world and the things therein, but those things will fade. Those things will pass on. Those things will burn. But our union with Christ is eternal, it's everlasting, it's imperishable, it's unfading, and it's kept for us. It's there. It's yours. So ask again. Ask again. Is there a more glorious or more excellent place than our union with Christ? Well, the Apostle Paul, he didn't seem to think so, did he? If you were to just turn over to the book of Ephesians in the first two chapters and you were to read, you would see numerous examples of your union with Christ. And you would hear the benefits of your union with Christ. Let me give you just a few that popped out to me as I was reading this week. In Christ, in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything that you could possibly imagine will be there that's good. Through Christ, we have been adopted. Through Christ, we have been adopted. We were former rebel childs, but now we have been brought in. 
because of Christ. In Christ, we have redemption. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have all wisdom and insight. In Christ, we have an inheritance. In Christ, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we have union with one another. In Christ, we have peace with one another. In Christ, we have access to the Father. In Christ, we are built, being built up to a heavenly, a heavenly dwelling place for God. So let me ask you again. Is there a greater, more glorious, more excellent place than our union with Christ? And the whole crowd went, no, of course not. There's not a more glorious place than our union with Christ. Father has called us to join with his son now and for all eternity. And this knowledge, this knowledge is a wellspring for godliness. If you have this union, you will grow. You will have godliness. You will love. You will care. You will lay down your life for one another. Secondly, we have been given precious and very great promises. We have been given precious and very great promises. On the hills of God calling us to his own glory and excellence, we see that we are granted promises. This is the second time in this one sentence where a form of the Greek word doron, granted, has been used. Peter is telling us that it is all God's doing from the beginning to the end about bringing about life and godliness. He has granted it to us. We just receive. We're recipients. There are also two other words that stick out in this phrase, right? About promises that describe these promises. And they're not often put together. Precious and very great. Many things, many things are great, but they are not precious. For example, the Empire State Building could be described as great or big or huge. But you never hear it often described as precious. Maybe the builder describes it as precious, but you don't hear most people describe it as precious. Likewise, your son or daughter's first words could be described as precious, right? But I'm not sitting over here saying, oh, that's so precious. Or I'm, I'm not sitting over here saying, well, that's great. That's, that's a big thing. No, no. There are very few things in the world that carry with them adjectives of precious and great. I want to close by giving you a few of the very great and precious promises hopefully to encourage you. We need to remember before we look at these promises, though, that they are a result of those who have the Holy Spirit working in their heart to produce faith. Without faith in Christ and Christ alone, there is no hope or promise that we can hold on to. But now that we have been granted faith, now that we have been given life, there are many promises that bring us hope. There are many promises that help us with this union with Christ. Again, I was greatly served, and I'm always served by these two men, J.C. Ryle and Charles Spurgeon, and I would love to, if y'all want resources to read later on, I'd love to give them to you. The first promise, the first great and precious promise that you and I could receive is a pardon from our sins. We've sung about it tonight. All my sins have been pardoned from now until the day I reach glory. Our passage even hints at this. At the end of verse 4, it says, We are partakers of the divine nature, 
having escaped the corruption of sinful desire that is found in this world. We have escaped. We have escaped because our sins have been pardoned. God has forgiven our sins. Spurgeon says this, and it's so sweet. He says, he who hath faith in Christ has no sin to curse him. His sins are washed away. They have ceased to be. They have been carried on the scapegoat's head into the wilderness. They are drowned in the Red Sea. They are blotted out. They are thrown behind God's back. They are cast into the depths of the sea. Here is the promise of perfect pardon. Is not this great? Is not this precious? As great as your sins are, this precious promise is far greater than the sin. Colossians 1.13 says this, The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the pardon of sins. Christ was given the curse and we were given forgiveness. He became the suffering servant and we became his children. Let me ask you this. Are you embracing this promise of forgiveness? Do you live life as if the payment for your sins has been done away with, has been paid, has fully paid off? Or do your former sins still haunt you? Are you still plagued by the guilt of your former ways? Does that one relationship, that one situation, that one argument, that one lapse of judgment still cause you shame? Rise up. Rise up, O man, and shake off the guilty fears. Look forward to tomorrow with great hope because you have been forgiven, knowing that your sins are forgiven. Don't live under the depressive darkness of your former sins. Instead, live under the radiant light of Christ and his forgiveness. Beloved, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about that for a second. It doesn't say later. It doesn't say one day in the future. It says now. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what should we do? We should walk now in the hope of forgiveness. The hope that our sins have been paid for. That they've been washed away. Is this promise? Is this promise of forgiveness not precious and very great to you? It is, right? Second promise that I want us to focus on is that we have been given the righteousness of Christ. Your sins not, are not only gone, right? They're not only forgiven, but now you have something that you didn't possess prior to conversion, prior to belief. You have Christ's righteousness. His right standing, his obedience, and his works are all yours. Romans 4 says this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what's the promise? It's that the faith that you have and you've been given, that you have obtained, the very faith now counts you right before God. Do you know that you are right now? Do you know that you are right before God? Do you know that right now you are as beautiful as you have ever been? But Jordan, have you seen me? 
I'm funny, I serve well, I, I care for others, and people genuinely love me. I'm being humorous with this, but there's truth in what I just said. So often we'd rather people see us than see our Savior. But any good, any righteousness that people see in us has been graciously given. It's been given to us. We have been given his righteousness. He has dressed us for his glory. As a woman adorns herself for a wedding day, so Christ clothes his bride. Isn't this precious? Isn't this very great? Not only do my sins get washed away, but I'm now given this great gift of his righteousness. The third promise I want us to consider is reconciliation. We were once far off. We were far off from God, but now God has brought us to himself. Romans 5, it's a, it's a great passage to have memorized. It says this, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have right now received reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God, and we can be reconciled to one another. Now, I want to take a little side note, side detour. Now, it is important to note here that when we talk about the promise of forgiveness and the promise of reconciliation to God, that we don't drift into thinking there is an exact one-to-one -one comparison to how we should be reconciled to one another. Yes, we need to forgive 70 times 7. We need to be ready to forgive. We need to be ready to be reconciled to one another completely. However, there are many of us in this room who have been hurt by friends, who've been hurt by family. And it makes it extremely difficult to be reconciled to a relationship that we formerly had. I'm not going to be specific here because every situation is different. And you should talk to your pastors. You should seek wisdom on what reconciliation might look like for you and a family member or a friend. But I will say this. We should always have a posture, a posture that is ready to forgive and a posture of being willing to talk about what reconciliation might look like if someone has wronged us. Let me close this thought on reconciliation with how the story of the prodigal son closes. We see the son go off into a sin, going off into the world, squandered his inheritance. Then we see him come back. He says, it's better to be a slave in my father's house than to be outside of his home. He comes back and his father receives him. Then we see at the end, the older brother in this parable seemed to not be ready to forgive his brother who came home after living in the world. The older brother's focus was seemingly on the unjust actions of his father. How could you? How could you forgive him? He stole from you. He, he's coming back now. How could you forgive him? 
How could you welcome him back? How can you slaughter a fattened calf? How could you do all these things? The older brother had no desire to be reconciled to his brother and hated that his father would be. All he had in his heart was hatred for his brother and a position of disgust for his father. Friends, let's be ready. Let's have a posture ready to forgive. Let's be ready to be reconciled. It will take work for sure. It will take labor for sure. But don't let your heart be hardened to the work. You understand that? Don't let your heart be hardened to the work of forgiveness. Remember, we were once enemies of God, but now he has brought us in as friends. We were once strangers to his kingdom, but now we're citizens. We were once rebels outside the household of God, but now we're members. He has reconciled us to himself. The blood of Christ has lifted us to the heights of all human existence. We are children of God. Christ has broken down the wall of hostility amongst sinful men. We can forgive. We can have reconciliation. He has and is reconciling men to himself. And isn't this promise, isn't this promise of reconciliation precious and very great? Last promise I want us to consider, and there are many more. This is just a list. So when you read things like very precious and great, you can think about all the promises, all the great things that God is doing and has done and will do for you. Last promise that I want us to consider is the promise of an inheritance. 1 Peter 1, what Cole read, tells us that we have an inheritance through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that is imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading, kept in heaven for us. Do you know what that means? See these clothes? These clothes will burn, they'll fade, they'll be destroyed. But you will not. You will not. You might die in this body, but you will be given a new body. And that new body will be somewhere. Will it be in heaven? Or will, will the wrath of God be upon you? There is a home waiting for the believer beyond the grave. Where we will have new bodies. The mortal will meet the immortal. I often think of the Israelites waiting for their inheritance, the promised land. How often they were disgruntled having to wait for the promised promise to be fulfilled. Friends, often we are like the Israelites. Our wilderness is this world, and we are called to stay here until the Lord calls us home, and he's going to call us home. Now, we don't live as vultures in this world. We don't live seeking to devour anything that will give us an inkling of satisfaction. We are called to live for the promise yet to come. The inheritance that's yet to come. That's already yours, but not yet. We are called right now to think about the one day where we will see this Savior face to face. And are you living? Are you living for this glory that is going to be revealed to us on the last day? My life is a vapor. And anything that does not bring glory to God will pass away. It will all be vanity. And this life is passing away. It was a common saying in Europe 
that money is not made, it's inherited. Likewise, our inheritance in heaven is not made, it is not earned, it is promised. Now let me correct myself. It is made and it is earned. It's just not earned by you. It's earned by Christ. And this, my friends, is a precious and very great promise. Believe upon it. Christ has went to the cross to secure it. Believe upon him. Take your hope. Fix it upon this Savior. Don't grow tired of learning about our Savior. Don't grow tired of hearing about these promises. I'll close with a word from Hebrews 10, 23. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. This knowledge that we have received. Then it says this, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the faithfulness of your son. Thank you for the grace of your son. We thank you, Lord, that we get all these promises because your son worked on our behalf. Father, allow us to grow in knowledge. Allow us to grow in understanding so that we might grow in godliness. Help us today. Help us leave here loving you. In Jesus' name, amen.